Hi everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. This is a brand new podcast show where we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I'm Tiger Gao, Princeton undergraduate class of 2021, and the director of outreach at Princeton's Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. Technology firms have been occupying headlines on all sorts of issues nowadays. Whether it's the executive's tech firm testifying in Capitol Hill,、uh, or it's the often volatile and sudden sell-off of tech stocks in the market, it really seems that technology is ever more intertwined with policy, finance, and also ethics-related discussions. How should we look at the relation between those fields, and what's our society's future with technological innovations? To discuss some of those issues related to tech, finance, and policy, it's a great honor for me to welcome Dr. Bill Janeway to our studio today. Dr. Janeway has been an active venture capitalist investor for more than 40 years. He built and led the technolo- technology investment team at the famous private equity firm Orbit Pincus, and his team provided financial backing to a series of critical contributions to the internet economy. And on the theory side and the academia side, Dr. Janeway taught at various capacities across famous academic and research institutions like Princeton and Cambridge University. Dr. Janeway graduated from Princeton in 1965 as the valedictorian of his class. He then received a PhD in economics from Cambridge University, where he was a Marshall Scholar. With such a diverse range of experiences, no wonder why people. Praise him as a theorist practitioner. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Janeway, and welcome back to Princeton. It's great to be here, Tiger. The second edition of your book, "Doing Capitalism in the Innovation Economy: Markets, Speculation, and the State," was just published this year.、Um, Eric Schmidt, former chairman of Google, calls it a classic that explains how. Venture capital has leveraged state investments and financial bubbles to change the world through technological innovation. So you identified this three-player framework: market, speculation, and state. Would you mind、uh, giving us a little bit more introduction to the? Sure, sure. I, I I learned this in the trenches. I learned this not in the economics classroom, but investing as a venture capitalist in information technology. By the late 1980s, I realized that I and all of my peers and the entrepreneurs we were backing, we were all dancing on a platform that had been constructed in the 30 years after World War II by the United States Department of Defense. And our our fellow investors who were entering the the new field of biotechnology, their platform had been constructed by the National Institutes of Health. Then, in the second half of the 1990s. What we've been working to do in building out this distributed computing environment, open and accessible for an unthinkably large range of potential applications, our work all of a sudden came to be valued extraordinarily, extraordinarily valued through the great tech bubble at the end of the. 20th century. So I realized that you know there's another force here, another source of funding that can mobilize resources at enormous scale for projects where we can't know in advance what the return is going to be. So I saw this: the mission-driven state, where it was, of course, the Cold War was the mission, winning the Cold War on the one hand, 
and financial speculation, financial capitalists looking for discontinuities, seeking to invest in unknowably but potentially phenomenally different futures could mobilize the resources that in turn could transform the market economy, the place where we, the, where we work, where we spend, where we save, where we buy. And so I, I conceived of this kind of three-player game with a very conscious metaphorical echo of the three-body problem in physics. In other words, there are an infinite number of different possible configurations the one that I lived through and benefited from was enormously constructive, but none of those configurations is a stable equilibrium. And certainly the world that enabled the digital revolution has seemingly disappeared from the United States today. And just to echo your point, that is probably a big reason why you released the second edition of your book, because in the past five, ten years, we've seen, uh, as you mentioned, the unicorn bubble. Well, right? well, the unicorn bubble, and even more than that, I, I think of this new version of my book as very substantially revised and extended for the age of Trump and Brexit. Awesome. <laughs> for a world in which government, the state, seems to have lost the trust of its constituents, a world in which the digital revolution has matured to the point where it's attacking the authority of the state that spawned it. At the micro level, indeed, we can see it with the, the, the unicorns like Uber and, 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 and Airbnb uh, radically disrupting local markets. But at the global and macro level, we see it through the, the forces of globalization, automation, financialization, which have radically transformed labor markets, as previous technological revolutions did before, but with political spillovers, with the losers in those markets demanding access to the political process to make it better, to fix it. Remember the President of the United States at the Republican National Conventions gave this litany of everything that was wrong in America and then said, quote, only I can fix it. The last time we heard right. words like that was in the 1930s and it wasn't from Franklin Roosevelt. Right. Right. And, and you mentioned that huge tech giants nowadays and the government, the state, their relationship has transitioned from collaboration to confrontation. Once upon a time, once upon a time uh, back when I was an undergraduate, uh, there was a collaborative relationship, a kind of public-private partnership. And it was legitimized, indeed, by the demands of the Cold War and by the potential for these new technologies to, ch to change how we communicated, how we connected, how markets functioned. And so the, the, uh, the IBMs and the AT&Ts of that world were partners with government, as well as government was sponsoring new companies that were challenging them, companies like Intel and Microsoft, for example. But as the, as the digital giants succeeded in bringing about the transformation of the market economy and gaining enormous power, something else was going on at the same time. A movement against government, against the legitimacy of government as an economic actor, which began with a set of intellectual entrepreneurs um, 
Their names are known to most everybody of every generation, from Frederick Hayek to Milton Friedman, with backing from libertarian business and financial people, uh, transformed the space in which public policy was discussed and debated so that it seemed almost a truism in 1981 when President Reagan, in his first inaugural speech, said, government is not the solution to the problem. Government is the problem. Standing on top of what had been a generation of extraordinarily constructive government investment at the frontier of technological innovation. And indeed, closer to home academically, this political movement, this ideological movement, was backed and extended and deepened by a generation worth of economics, not only from the University of Chicago, which purported to demonstrate in the efficient markets and rational expectations hypothesis that it was a very simple political message that left to themselves, markets would deliver an efficient, fair, and stable outcome. And that the only economic role of government was to screw them up. So we had not just President Reagan, but President Clinton saying the age of big government is over. The deregulation of the financial system that proceeded through the 1980s and 1990s. The sponsorship of the impact of the digital revolution on the financial system, the construction of the enormously, apparently limitless array of derivative securities that could only have been constructed without and, and traded, exactly, with computers to manage the data, to construct the intricate network of cash flows that were supposedly being valued by the, by the um, uh, squared derivatives of synthetic derivatives, et cetera. Right. Uh, well, it all blew up in 2008. It all blew up in 2008. And that's where, that's where the, if you like, the, uh, the optimistic conclusion of the conclusion of my book is, is to be found, that for the disciplines of economics and finance, the global financial crisis and the Great Recession were gifts that keep on giving, that have challenged the disciplines to respond creatively to the discovery that indeed markets are subject to failure, that when they fail, participants in markets appeal, not rationally, but emotionally, to the political process for redress and relief. And if they don't find it, they look for those who will promise them protection and power that was not available to them when the markets blew up in their faces. And between the period of 2008, when everything blew up, and around 2016, when Brexit and um, the rise of President Donald Trump came, you also mentioned uh, in your book that there was an increase of publicly directed investments or public sector. Well, this 10 years, we had one very brief moment at the start of the Obama administration with the stimulus bill where there was some attempt to use the stimulus bill for what we desperately need, but it was 
radically inadequate, and it was not politically legitimized. And that was the, the small amount of the stimulus bill, which itself was too small, uh, in counter to the, as the economy froze in 2009, that was devoted to clean tech, green tech, to, uh, to solar, to battery technology. It was trivial relative to the need. In fact, on the contrary, I would say that it was in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, when as a funder of research and as an early customer for the products of that research, the Defense Department did not so much direct as nudge the direction of investment in the United States towards the, the digital technologies, towards silicon and software, and then the internet. Um, today, the greatest open question for this country, for the world, is whether the U.S., having abdicated from participating in response to climate change can get its act together in time to participate in constructing that response where it appears China is now the global leader. And just going off that point about um, China and government-directed responses and innovations, I mean, in cases like what we're seeing in China today where the government spends billions of dollars creating artificially those sort of AI cities or machine learning towns or whatever. And so do you think that government-directed innovations um, will sometimes only end up benefiting each country on their own, the, each government's own interests rather than uh, the interest of the entire humanity? Do, do you think there's a... Well, there are always spillovers. One of the great things, and there's a, the literature on this goes back to the 1950s, the great, the late great Canaro and Dick Nelson, who, who, who demonstrated that profit-seeking companies under competitive conditions will never invest enough in the, the optimal amount of research and development because they can't capture all the returns because the, the knowledge spills over becomes available to others. And that's why there's a case for why government should always be prepared to invest, particularly in the most uncertain, the most high risk, the most frontier science. Second, in the 1950s and 60s, well, going back to World War II, the United States invested billions of dollars creating places like Los Alamos, or the national labs from Argonne, Illinois, to uh, Berkeley, California. Um, the spillovers from those labs were slow to come because much of them were involved with building the atomic bomb. And we can be glad that the spillovers were somewhat, but not perhaps enough limited uh, to the rest of the world. But the spillovers from the digital revolution from silicon, some of it was more or less planned, some of it was inevitable, some of it, those spillovers came about because of coherent, focused government programs in Japan and Korea, even before China, before the opening up of China. Um, and they did become benefits to the world, not because of government policy, but because of the nature of knowledge and the inevitable spillovers that come with the invention of new stuff. So China is clearly uh, in two domains, clearly investing aggressively, but not doing so exclusively 
through state-owned enterprises and, 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 and state-owned facilities. In the U.S., great breakthrough in World War II was to fund research, not ex except for the atomic bomb, through the universities. It was the Defense Department that essentially created the research university in the United States. The United States was two generations behind Germany in universities as places where fundamental scientific research took place. China clearly has done a great deal of this through state universities, but it's also sponsored the emergence of a private sector, very competitive private sector, which now employs more than half of all the people employed in China, even as the state-owned enterprises have declined. However, the Chinese have their own three-player game. They have their own dynamics between Beijing, the regional governments, the local governments. It's very complicated. Um, Wei Zhang of the Princeton Economics Department yes. has published wonderful papers on the dynamics of this process, a brand new paper that specifically looks at the competition set up by Beijing between the local and regional governments in order to both motivate and manage their role in the emergence of this modern economy in China. But like, and, and also, I should say, China has its own source of speculative finance. In 2017, between Shanghai, Shenzhen, and Hong Kong, there were four times as many IPOs as there were in the United States. Correct. <laughs> and many of those, of course, people are going to lose money on, just as they have in the United States. So there's a speculation as a force in China. But let me, let me assure you that the three-player game with Chinese characteristics is indeterminate. We don't know, and Xi Jinping can't know today what the outcome will be a decade or a generation later. Awesome. That's a fascinating response. And I want to go a little bit more, I guess, into the future, because we had industrialization. We've had the internet. We've got to enter the mobile era. And this, what do you see as the next revolutionary tech innovation after being in this sector for so many years? Is it going to be artificial intelligence, blockchain maybe? Well, let's take, let's take those separately. Um, first of all, I did live through, and the book has a um, rather, uh, I'd say, extended account of the last hype wave for artificial intelligence in the 1980s, in the first half of the 1980s. Then the underlying technology were known as expert systems, rule-based systems derived from extracting from human beings what appeared to be their rules of behavior. It turned out it turned out that the reality was way short of the promise and the hope. Expert systems, rules-following systems, they're to be found everywhere. They're embedded in software in every imaginable system. But, but they represent the apprentice level of intelligence. If then, if then, not the kind of creative pattern-seeking that characterizes expert behavior in uncertain domains. Now, we have a new set of technologies, the broadly defined machine learning technologies, including, of course, most particularly the deep learning networks uh, that over the last five years have become the next big thing. So 
they are going to have significant application and already are. Now, a good deal of what's grouped with them is actually traditional statistical analysis dressed up as predictive analytics. And that's fine. That's great. They, they are powerful tools and they're embedded in software and they have to be adapted carefully to specific applications. The notion, however, that deep learning networks represent a path, a, an inevitable path, either to nirvana or terror of true artificial general intelligence, I believe, along with many others, including Jeff Hinton in Toronto, who invented deep learning networks as a technology, to Rodney Brooks, who was the uh, leader of robotics at MIT for many years. That's nonsense. And the overpromising is all too likely, as it did the last time round, to lead to frustration, disappointment, anger at what's been overpromised. We can see, we can see that these new techniques have at least two powerful application cases. One is recognizing patterns on which they have been trained. But the question is, who trains them and for what purpose? When the training data is itself biased, as for example, arrest data in the United States is objectively biased because of the patterns of arrest that have emerged from the distinctive American history that goes back to slavery. The output of those systems used, for example, for deciding who will be granted parole, what should the sentencing be for a particular individual, the output will be as biased as the input. They need transparent audit and analysis before they're let loose on society. The second application, the second application is playing games where the rules are given externally, exogenously, whether it's chess or go, where the rules will generate combinatorial explosions, these new systems are extraordinarily powerful in playing them. But you know, games where the rules are set in advance are actually in human life, in the social world we live in, relatively trivial. The real games, the games that matter, are exemplified by the game that you and I are playing right now. It's a game of trying to understand, to work out in real time what the words that I'm speaking mean to you, given your own distinctive, unique context for hearing those words and translating them meaningfully into your own context. The machines are terrible at playing those games. They are useless, but those games are the games of human life. So that's where these artificial intelligent systems will demonstrate that they're more artificial than intelligent and where they're best deployed as intelligent assistants to, to human. human beings. And just to go off a little bit about this interplay between human beings and technology, a very quick but also, I guess, broad question is that there's the opinion that humans have the capability to create wonderful 
technological innovation, but, but we lack the sometimes the, the morality or the vision to control them well, and that which means probably end up destroying ourselves with those technologies first before we actually benefit from them. Do you do you agree with this? Well, some, I, here's like this? what I do believe deeply, and um, and I have to say that at, at Princeton I was a beneficiary of this. Students who are engaged in mastering the technologies and the disciplines and the tools of the STEM subjects of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, I think need and should know that they need embedding in history, literature, moral philosophy, the human lived historical context in which technologies have been developed and been deployed for over generations. I think that that would have played an enormously positive role in perhaps informing those who created the global financial crisis some, uh, how should I put it, humility with respect to what they were doing in putting the computers to work like the sorcerer's apprentice to generate ever more complex derivatives on top of derivatives on top of derivatives. We've talked so much about technology and those philosophical questions. I almost forgot to shift our gear a little bit to, to the markets and the policy stuff because you're also an economist, a uh, um, venture capitalist, and you've witnessed many bubbles in your lifetime, the famous dot-com bubble around 2000 for one. Um, why, why do bubbles and recessions keep happening? Like, Is it just because humans don't learn their lessons, or do you think, as you said, financial speculations play a certain role? Well, I, first of all, I think we begin with, this is philosophy, an ontological assertion. Ontological. Ontological. Assertion. That means the theory of things that are. How is the reality we live with? What is the beingness of the world? The beingness of the world is that time moves in one direction from a past that we struggle to understand, that we have conflicts over extracting meaning from, to a present that is all itself too difficult to predict while we're living in it, to a future that has patterns and persistent trends, but as we go out becomes increasingly unknowable. I like to say that, you know, in Julius Caesar, Shakespeare has this famous conversation where um, Cassius says, the fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, it's in ourselves. And I would say, wrong. The fault's in our stars. We can't know the consequences of our actions. So what do we do? We follow the herd. Perhaps the best single, the best known single uh, expression of Keynes's, of the genius of John Maynard Keynes, was what he called, in talking about the stock market, what he called the beauty contest. Now, the beauty contest that he was describing was distinctive in Britain between World War I and World War II. It was a contest not to pick, and I know this is a, 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 it was a sexist society as it still remains too much. It wasn't just to pick the prettiest girl. It was to pick who a consensus of people would believe was the prettiest girl. And then you can think of this as an infinite uh, 
layering of games on top of games. So in the stock market, Kane said, it's like that. We're not trying to bet on what's the best stock. We're trying to bet on what the crowd will believe the best stock is. We look at right. each other. We see what each other are doing, and we adjust our own behaviors accordingly. George Soros calls this reflexivity. The price is a function of the decisions to buy this price. The price is not an independent source of data. It's not a data point. It's itself the outcome, the output of multiple people trying to guess what other people are going to do. Now, Princeton, Princeton Financial Economics, two great former members of the economics department here, Jose Scheinkman and Hyun Shin, separately devised a, a, a signature of a bubble, a signature of a bubble that cuts against all that you're taught in freshman economics about supply and demand. You know, when price goes up, demand is supposed to fall, supply is supposed to increase. Well, the signature of a bubble in the stock market is that when the price of the shares go up, demand for the stock increases. Correct. In the banking system, in the credit system, when the price of assets go up, and this is Hyun Shin's work, when the price of assets go up, it means that the bank has more equity. It has more capital. It has more capital. And if it has a constant leverage, you can do the math in your head, Tiger. If it's on a 10 to 1 leverage ratio, right, and the capital it has goes up, doubles, it means it can go from assets of 10 to assets of 20. Right? Exactly. And so the demand for loans, the supply of loans goes up, the creation of assets goes up. That's what happened in the credit bubble. Now, the law of bubbles, the law of bubbles, as I like to say, is that they're ubiquitous. They reflect the fundamental uncertainty of the world we live in. That's why I began with ontology. The, but, but not all bubbles are the same. And the beginning of wisdom on this is to recognize that bubbles are different along two separate dimensions. They're different according to what the focus of the bubble is. What is the asset whose price is being bid up? Is it tulip bulbs? Is it marijuana stocks? It's very unlikely that buying more, putting a higher value on tulip bulbs or, or marijuana stocks is going to increase the production possibilities of the economy. But occasionally, much rarer than something like tulip bulbs or beach houses in the Nevada desert or marijuana stocks, occasionally the object of speculation has been one of those technological revolutions, railways, electrification in the 1920s, the internet and computing and applications thereof in the 1990s, that when the capital is mobilized at such enormous scale, it actually transforms the market economy. It creates a new economy. And that's what the speculation is about. The bubble bursts. All bubbles burst. But in the process, they leave behind, they can leave behind in these few cases, they can leave behind the, the foundations of a new economy. But Here's the other aspect, the other way you have to differentiate bubbles. Where is the speculation taking place? Which means how much leverage, how much borrowing is fueling the speculation? When it's in the stock market 
or the junk bond market as it was in the 1990s, when that bubble burst, the economic damage was limited. It was, it was underwritten by conventional monetary policy, no special lifting. When it's in the banking system, the leverage is 30 to 1, 40 to 1. It was more than 50 to 1 in 2007, 8. So when that bubble burst, it froze the provision of credit to the market economy around the world, except in China, where the government reacted with enormous vigor and enormous effectiveness. So bubbles differ according to the locus and the focus of the speculation. If it's only in the stock market, the regulators, the officials, the state can let them run. It's not going to do that much damage. Some people will make money. Some people will lose money. If it's into the credit system, whatever the object is, be very careful. Be very careful. The damage can be tr absolutely catastrophic. So just to quickly summarize your point, when we talk about bubbles, it's really about the, the, the focus on the type of assets that we're talking about and the, and the leverage we're talking about. That's right. And in the process, certainly uh, certain financial bubbles and speculations do help propel. There have been. We can observe a small number of enormously productive bubbles that amplified and accelerated technological revolutions. That's in the historical record over the last 200 years. So we shouldn't just say, oh, bubbles are, are, are bad just because they're bubbles. Right. We have to look at it with a very nuanced Exactly way. right. Exactly right. Wonderful. Uh, you've obviously worked across the private sector and academia. How would you categorize the main differences between them? Because we always hear people say that, you know, actually investing and making a good return is not the same as proposing a good theory on paper. And th there's often a disconnection. Um, well, and, and, or, or, <laughs> or, doing, or doing profound experimental work in the lab, uh, whether the lab is a wet lab, a chemistry lab, or whether it's a dry lab, a computer. All right. Uh, so there are multiple dimensions. One is it's harder and harder in the private sector harder and harder to take a long-term view, to be funded to think beyond the immediate consequences for stockholder value. Quarterly earnings. Quarterly earnings. Uh, once upon a time, there were a set of monopoly corporations in the United States that through their sort of working relationship with the federal government, were able to invest major funding into fundamental science. There were companies like DuPont, IBM, AT&T, Xerox. Uh, those monopolies eroded under competitive conditions. And on the other hand, the rise of the shareholder value movement associated particularly with General Electric, uh, Jack Welch's, who has who then subsequently, many, many years later after he retired, said that maximizing shareholder value as the only purpose of the corporation is, quote, the dumbest thing I ever heard of, unquote. Well, the first thing he did at GE was close central research. And there was a concerted push towards shorter term investment on the part of private sector corporations whose collective investment in science never approached that of the federal government in the post-World War II era. Today, Carving out the space to be a long-term investor is extremely difficult in the private sector. Limited partners are focused on 
internal rate of return as the sole measure of performance. And you don't have to be a math major to know that time is the exponential enemy of IRR. So in the academy, particularly once you have tenure, you can be on a longer term trail towards discovering knowledge. And as has occurred over the last generation, the membrane, the permeable, the membrane between the academy and the private sector has become much more permeable. It's much easier to transition. Of course, particularly, this has been true in biotechnology, but now it's really true in machine learning, where almost every leading research program in the private sector has guidance and direction and participation from people who continue to hold academic positions. This is true at Microsoft, Amazon, Google, even Apple which was the most closed digital corporation of them all. Its data scientists are allowed to publish. So indeed, the flip side of being able to think long-term is protection from being fired along the way. That's called tenure. Tenure is a good thing. Right. But uh, it, it, um, it does, it can set up challenges in for those attempting to manage the academic enterprise, of course, nothing comes without some cost. Um, so after the Second World War, we're talking about the, the three players, the state, f finance, markets, they were all constructively aligned and, and together they created the digital revolution. Um, but now, just going back to your point, the sort of alignment really changed to polarization, to paralysis. Um, innovations are in conf conflict with the government. Do you in any way attribute those conflicts to, I guess, the government's failure to protect the people from economic consequences that the technological revolution has caused? That's kind of coming in at the tail end. Uh, this process, uh, first, there are multiple processes going on. As I, as I like to say, the thing about the three-player game, it's like the three-body problem in, fin in physics. Infinite number of configurations, none of them is a stable equilibrium. Okay, one of the processes was the program of delegitimizing the state as an economic actor. It had an ideological uh, source. It goes back to the reaction particularly in Central Europe, uh, with a particular uh, uh, leader, intellectual leader, Frederick Hayek, the reaction against the totalitarianism of the left and the right, of Stalin and Hitler. And it was understandable. It got deep support and rationalization out of a revolution in economics that became visible in the 1970s and became dominant through the 1980s, the rational expectations revolution, the notion that we could construct models whereby an agent, not a human being by definition, an agent whose model of the world was accurate, whose knowledge of the future was omniscient, whose motivation was to optimize intertemporal utility, could both make efficient allocation of resources through time, contrary to all human experience, and also offset by her actions whatever intervention the government might make. So the only thing that could shake 
this state of perpetual equilibrium was some exogenous shock. And of course, what destroyed the theory, which it will take a generation to free ourselves from, what destroyed the theory was generated endogenously through the great credit bubble that exploded in 2008. It wasn't a meteor that destroyed the equilibrium, the pseudo-equilibrium of the great moderation in macroeconomic behavior. That great moderation was underwritten by successive interventions by the Federal Reserve and other central banks when it started to fall apart, going back to the 1980s, and then was blown up by the endogenous forces. Uh, I have to give a footnote here. During my years, what I think of as my 35-year sabbatical from the academy as a venture capitalist, I did make one friend. I developed one very close relationship with a maverick renegade economist from Harvard named Hyman Minsky. Yes. And, and Minsky's narratives, his theoretical narratives of how financial systems would evolve endogenously, internally, from being prudent and careful and fully hedged to being speculative where loans had to be refinanced, they couldn't be paid off 100% in cash, to what he called the Ponzi regime, yes, where the lenders actually, to maintain the, the fiction that the loans are still good, the, the creditors have to lend the interest to the borrowers. Well, we actually observed that in 2006-07, when in the private equity buyout world, the buyers got the choice the buyers were given the choice between paying cash interest or borrowing more money from the banks. At that point, it was obvious that we were going to have a crisis. So economic theory, coming back from that, the rediscovery of Hyminsky is one of the numerous signals that, as I say, the global financial crisis is providing an enormous, positive, constructive force in the disciplines of economics and finance that will help change the environment for public policy down the road in a good direction. And just looking ahead at the, at the future, um, what, are, what do you think are some of the challenges that obviously on the private sector side, the, the technology innovators will face? And what do you think the government should do from the policy and regulative, regulatory perspective um, this should, should do? Well, we're seeing, we're seeing the uh, backlash against big tech, obviously. It's focused principally on Facebook, but not only Facebook. There's, it, it emerged earlier in Europe where the state remained more legitimate as an economic actor than in the United States, but it's even now clearly spilled over into the United States. It will take a lot of work by really smart people who are not being currently recruited to the executive branch of the federal government to rethink, first, the legitimacy of antitrust regulation for a digital world, and then the specifics of how it's relevant to implement them. But something that is pretty obvious, pretty obvious, and that I, I, I write about at length in the book, we've emerged into a world where the, the concentration, the profitability, of the leading technology companies is so enormous and the lack of regulatory oversight is so complete that any potential challenger can be acquired 
even at what appear to be absolutely ludicrous valuations. So a WhatsApp gets acquired before it can become an independent challenger. A YouTube gets acquired before it becomes a So clearly some regulation of M&A and the original antitrust laws, the original antitrust laws were much about competitive conditions of industry as they were about the relationship between monopolistic vendors and customers. The, um, the, the rediscovery, it, it is the case, it is the case that the effective defanging of the antitrust regulations was similarly a function of the market-focused economics of the 1970s and 80s, the law and economics movement that came out of Chicago, which basically said the only thing that matters is customer surplus. And if the service is free, how can that be a violation of the antitrust laws? So rethinking that whole structure uh, around the power of the data-driven digital giants is going to take time, and it, it's begun academically, but it's going to take real extended time and perhaps almost certainly, well, not almost, certainly another administration before it becomes implemented. And many new thinkings, many right. new ideas. Um, the name of our podcast is Policy Punchlines, so I really have to ask you at the end of our show, what's the punchline here? Policy, digital economy, our society's future. Actually, um, the punchline the punchline here, Tiger, is looking, going back to think about, to address the future. It is back to the future. It's back to how we evolved into this very constructive collaboration, public and private collaboration, where speculative finance came along to amplify what, was dis what, what had been developed. How do we learn from that to make response to climate change relevant in the American context? And this is, this is perhaps the biggest frustration of all, but it's potentially the biggest political opportunity of all. Trump had a taste of it back in 2016. It's completely disappeared since he was elected. But when you think about it, the thing about the green, clean revolution is that it's the greatest opportunity in the history of humankind to create jobs and generate profits yes. as we reconstruct the infrastructure of the economy to materially move the demand and supply curves for carbon without killing anyone. Yes. Now that's the punchline. And and you said that for the your advice for the 2020 Democratic presidential candidate is to combine healthcare with climate change. Well, we 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 were educated in the midterm elections that people really want to really care about healthcare. Right. So constructing a kind of creative set of links between what's happening to the environment and the healthcare, the, the consequences for the health of human beings from what's going on to the clear perceived need in this country for support for open access to lower cost healthcare. Right. That's the winning formula. Thank you so much for joining us today, uh, Dr. Janeway. This is a fascinating discussion. Uh, really appreciate you joining us today. It's great to be here, Tiger. Thank you. 
And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Uh, we also want to thank uh, Princeton's Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance uh, for sponsoring our project. Please find more information about us at jrc.princeton.edu. Um, and if you would like to listen to more of our episodes, please find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. Thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.